Now, you may ask the question, why are the dealings of God with us so extreme? I mean, is there not a way to be reconfigured in the maturity of sonship without being, quote, burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we might despair even of life. Why is that the quantum of suffering and trials that's necessary? At the end of the session, we talked about the fact that what it is designed to do is to produce in you an absolute lack of confidence in anything that you may do. But why does it need to reach this level? Beyond strength. Beyond the ability to endure. I mean, isn't there a threshold somewhere above that where just before you expire, you can sort of be lifted out of it? Why do you have to, to come to that extreme? And the answer is, the level of the corruption that came into mankind subsequent to the fall cannot be overcome except by this level of change. You want to say, what level of corruption are you talking about? I mean, God forgives you of your sins. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He recultures your understanding so that sin uh, is, you become aware of sin and you have choice. And if you, with some degree of consistency, choose not to sin, then the enemy really doesn't have much of a hold on you. Hmm? I'm, what annoys me actually, is how religion distorts what might otherwise be plainly seen. Because we define sin and the world almost as interchangeable um, things. So we say there's worldliness, which is sin, and we have lists of sins that we consider worldliness. But indeed, the term world refers to a level of corruption that is so fatal in its entrapment that it captures you in the labyrinth of it and you're not even aware of it. So to be able to repent of your involvement in the world, you first have to see the extent to which you're entrapped in the world. The things that are commonly referred to as sin indeed are sin, but they're the low-hanging fruit. They're the easily discovered things. They're typically the sins of the flesh. But the world is something far beyond, far more entrapping, than 
the sins one commits, like adultery, fornication, lying, and so on. All of which are sins, don't misunderstand me. They're easy enough to see. But the world is a construction that is not, you're born into it, and you wear it and the environment of it like a second skin. It so permeates your being that unless God shows it to you, you don't even know that it exists. So, let me, let me introduce this by showing you a quasi-dilemma in the scriptures. John, the writer, in John chapter 3, verse 16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now the Greek word for the term world, for God so loved the world, is the word cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S, cosmos. God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what John said. The same John, writing in the, gospel, in the book of 1 John, says, do not love the world. And you know what? He uses the same word, cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. Do not love the world, because if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Now wait a minute, time out. God loves the world. But if you love the world, the love of God who loves the world is not in you. What do we have? What's going on here? It's not actually a dilemma. It's just how language is used. If I were to say to you, I've been traveling in the world, as English speakers, native English speakers, would you understand what I mean? Sure. But if I were to say to you, I met this fellow on the plane, and he was in his own world. You would not understand that that's the same world I've been traveling in. Right? What makes the difference? I'm using exactly the same word. And you laugh because you recognize the understanding. Because you're native speakers. You understand that my context allows me to use accurately the word world, which is a domain or a sphere, in a different way. You don't have to invent a different word every time you want to talk about a domain or a sphere. But they're different domains and spheres. You see? And the context tells you which of those domains and which of those spheres that I'm referring to. So when the scripture says, for God so loved the domain, that domain he defines as man. Right? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, because the obvious domain is a reference to man, so whatever man believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now as English speakers, we know that intuitively. But when it says, do not love the domain, the world, 
Because whoever loves that domain, the love of the Father is not in him. He's clearly talking about a different domain and specifically he's talking about one that God didn't create. And indeed there is such a domain that God didn't create. The God of that domain has blinded their minds. The God of that cosmos domain world is called the Cosmocrator, synonym for Satan. Cosmocrator. And the effect of living in that world is that the, your mind is blinded that you can't see the truth. Blinded. The effect of living in the domain controlled by Satan blinds you to the reality of God. Now Satan introduced that domain right in the garden when he suggested to Adam that there was a different way to view his place in creation. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He introduced a domain that God did not create, that put man, that deceptively, blindingly put man in the center of that domain. But the entire domain is a construction of lies, so whoever de depends upon a lie is going to be deceived. Your soul is going, the eyes of your soul are going to be blinded to the existence of this deceptive reality. And the entire way of going forward will assume that this reality in which you live is the normal reality. So what then is the cosmos? What then is the world? The world is not merely a, 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 the, the, the location for the existence of opportunities for bad behavior which are easily recognizable. No. It's much, much, much more devious than that. It's a collection of systems designed to cause the soul to rely on them rather than on God. The, mas the promise is that the mastery of these systems will give you the security that your soul longs for. So what are some of these systems? They're common systems. The, the principal one in my estimation, certainly the one with which I have perhaps the most familiarity, is the law. The system of law. Now, every time you collect people together into some configuration, a neighborhood or a nation, a family, you're going to inevitably have conflicts between these people. Conflict is normal for human life. It's the systems by which you adjudicate conflict that determines whether or not you come out of it in the right fashion. The kingdom 
anticipates that citizens of the kingdom, fellow members one of another, and brothers one to another, will have conflict. As long as you have humans configured together, you will have conflict. Conflict is an inevitability of human life. Conflict is not sin. But the manner of the resolution of conflict may be either what furthers the advance of sin or extricates people and brings them into the light. So let me compare the two systems, the one of the cosmos and the other of the kingdom. In the adjudication of disputes, you begin with the basic concept of value. Of value. Because typically people are fighting over something. Hmm? To my knowledge, most people don't just fight over nothing. It's too much energy, too much trouble. But when you fight over something, you've placed value in the thing. In the world, when you, when you bring a matter for adjudication to a forum that is able to adjudicate it, the law and the legal system, you come into a system in which no matter what your relationships were before that, now in this system, you're put into the respective roles of adversaries. Adversaries. If you're fighting over a thing, then the the quantum of proof required to gain the thing is not only that you show a sufficiency of proof that the thing actually belongs to you, but you have the additional burden of showing why the thing does not belong to the other. And that's where you begin to attack the proofs brought by the other, like you've brought proofs in support of your claim, they bring proofs in support of their claims, and you, by attacking their claims, have confined them to the place of being liars and deceivers. The system makes you into adversaries. So, at the end of the day, Whoever gets the thing loses the brother. If you, if you, if you imagine um, that this thing has permutations from brothers, husbands and wives to uh, business partners, this is not a system designed to cure society. Because the principle of this system is rooted in two things. Number one, that value is placed in a thing. And number two, it is impossible to restore the relationship. Therefore, the goal of adjudication is never reconciliation. It is merely conciliation. The difference between conciliation 
and reconciliation is this. Conciliation is designed to mitigate the damage so that society as a whole is not completely slaughtered in the resolving of the conflict. Reconciliation would look for the opportunity to cure the problem at the root of the problem, which is the discord between the brothers. You see? By the way, I might point out here, we typically, in the evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic church, we don't preach a gospel of reconciliation. We preach a gospel of conciliation. We admit that man is lost, true. And we admit that he needs to be saved, true. But the farthest we go with it is to fix up the consequence of his sin by saying that salvation ensures that he doesn't go to hell when he dies. We leave on the table the gospel of reconciliation, which is this. You save him to put him back into the original intent. You see? In other words, we weren't created to go to heaven when we die. We weren't created just to be saved, just so that we could go to heaven when we die. We were created to be the sons of God, to represent the Father in the venue of time and space. When we die, we also go to heaven. Okay? That's why we don't know what to do with people once they're saved. We make all kinds of work for them to do, Anything but what they were designed to do. You're just killing time till you get to go to heaven. And that's why we're falling behind on being effective in the present age. Our gospel is not the gospel of reconciliation. Our gospel has come to be the gospel of conciliation. We're just happy to get out of here. That, and in that paradigm, we interpret everything from the viewpoint of making it to heaven when we die. So suffering, I just pray that God will take me out of this. You know, There's no place for the understanding of suffering because suffering is the refining fire that releases the dross from the, from the precious metal so it can be scooped off and the refining process produce the pure gold, which is useful, but not in its mixed state. We only see suffering as how God shows his displeasure with us. That's rubbish. Or how, how God, uh, how we messed up. Sometimes that's true, and the cure for that is repentance. So this notion of conciliation permeates our entire worldview. And it is demonic. Because it stops short of what the kingdom's solution is. So what would be the kingdom's alternative to the system of the cosmos that makes adversaries of you in the process of adjudicating disputes? Well, first, the kingdom would begin by placing value differently. The world places value on the thing. The kingdom places value on the relationship. So if your brother sins against you, 
the goal of the adjudication of resolving the dispute, the goal is to gain your brother. Because the intent is to further the gospel of reconciliation, which is a, a, a doctrinal posture that permeates every aspect of your life and being, not just a doctrine about going to church and or going to heaven when you die. The concept of reconciliation supplants the concept of an adversarial outcome. You go into the process of adjudication with the intent of reconciliation being the outcome. And you will go to, you'll stop at nothing to gain your brother. So if he doesn't come back at your entreaty, what do you do? You say, well, I went to him. First of all, you'll object by saying, he sinned against me, why should I go to him? Well, because when you sinned against him, he came to you. <laughs> On earth as it is in heaven. Right? So shall you be like your father who is in heaven. It's a way of life. Please understand, I'm talking to you about a way of living and being in this present world that is not based in the wisdom of this world. But such a thing can only be understood when the mind is renewed. When the mind of the spirit again rules over the mind of the soul. But think about it. When we think of sin, do we think of the cosmos? Do we think of these systems that are so embedded in our thinking that we think God put them in place? The, the system of education furthers the concept of not retaining God in your knowledge. And, and what do we do? When you do not retain God in your knowledge, you answer the question how, and you think you're answering the question why. Science does that all the time. If there's a tsunami that comes ashore, and in an instant kills 250,000 people, the scientists will not answer the question why, but they'll all get on the television and tell you how. And they think by telling you how, they've told you why. When you do not retain God in your knowledge, there's a limit to the mind. Because beyond certain thresholds, you cannot go. Because there's no, there's no door into the ceiling. There's no door opened into heaven. There's no voice that says to you, come up here and sit with me and I'll make sense for you out of the events of your life. Come up here and sit with me. I'll show you what is happening in the world. It's happening all the time now. We used the example earlier of, of Donald Trump. A petulant child who has become the alter ego of the evangelical 
charismatic church in America. And they can't see it. Why? Because in the political system, or, or the church in America has placed its, its, the general church in America has placed its hope in the political system. And they'll tell you such foolish things as it is your, it is your Christian duty to go and vote. Give me a candidate I can vote for and I will. But don't tell me that I'm reduced to choosing the lesser of two evils. Because my choice is still evil. And I do not ever intend to consciously make an evil choice. But that's the reason that prevails now. Because the people do not see that there are all these systems, political, legal, religious, educational, medical, commercial, all these systems are based in how you might sustain your life in view of the competition. That's what the cosmos, in a nutshell, in, in less than a summary, that's what the cosmos is like. The, in the whole, that whole world lies in darkness. Because it does not acknowledge the light and the glory of God that has appeared in the King, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That king came and established a kingdom with its own systems that is directly in conflict with the God of this world. So there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's the God of that world and there's the God of heaven incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are kingdoms in conflict. And there's no aspect of human life that is untouched by these systems. So when we begin to think of sin, and all we are thinking about in regards to sin is personal sin, we have not begun to scratch the surface of the need for the enlightenment of the understanding of our hearts, that our hearts may be enlightened. And if all you do is you manage to contain your personal sinful behavior, you still have not escaped the pollutions of, the, of this world. Because they saturate the culture. They are how you define the culture of godlessness. And to escape from this, you can't be educated about it in it. You have to be rescued from it. So God has to pick you up from there and translate you into his kingdom. I read that somewhere. For God has translated us from the control of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. Now a translation is what happens as an out-of-body experience. 
Philip was next found at Azotus. His body caught up with him, but he was moved so rapidly that his body could not possibly have moved in that fashion. So the transformation is by, your, by the entrapment of your spirit in a certain domain, you being picked up and deposited in a different kingdom under a different king. Your body will catch up with it in that kingdom. The whole process recognizes the need for a renewing of the mind. Because this system so thoroughly enslaves you that even when you have been translated into the kingdom and arrive as a newborn, there's still the strongholds of that kingdom following you and, co- and governing your mind while you're in the new kingdom. And the war now begins because you are a citizen of this kingdom, but that thing still has control over your responses. You're inclined to respond automatically to what you already knew. So the war is on in you. The weapons of your warfare then are not carnal. They're not, you can't figure out how to have a fully funded walk of faith. For example, when you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God. That mindset is of no value to you in the new domain. The thing you are to learn in the new domain is submission to the standard of that domain which is personified in the form of the king. That kingdom, when you are in the kingdom of darkness, your measure is Satan. When you see men increasingly behaving in a demonic fashion, it is because that kingdom is becoming increasingly reflective of its king. And you're not mistaken, man hasn't always been this bad. The kingdom is moving toward the more perfect representation of its king. The levels of depravity that humans are now reaching that have been hitherto for unknown among mankind. There may have been the seeds of them, but never so much the widespread overflowing of them in the world. At the same time, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are beginning to increasingly manifest the standards of the character of the king of this kingdom. And the gap is widening between the two. So much so that the scriptures say that the end of the age will be defined in this fashion. Let the righteous be righteous still, and let the wicked be wicked still. There'll come a point where very few people are left in the middle. Where dark is so dark, and light is so brilliant, that everyone either chooses positively or by neglect chooses. And it's coming to that in the world. Now my point was that we did not know 
we have not known the extent to which this darkness is in us. Because when we moved from the domain of darkness and landed in the kingdom of the Son of God, we brought our souls with us. This kingdom of darkness and its systems are designed specifically to induce the soul to rely on them. Because the things that are in the world are exactly the things that appeal to the soul. What things are in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. They do not come from the Father, but they come from the world. That's what John said. What's the lust of the flesh? What's the lust of the eyes? What's the pride of life? Well, the lust of the flesh is the desire to save the flesh above all else. The lust of the eyes is your vision for doing that. And the pride of life is your resource, are your resources to accomplish it. Now, examples of lust may be sexual and the things we typically think of as lust. But they're just examples. The lust of the flesh is the desire above all to survive. The lust of the eyes, was not man told that his eyes will be opened? Sure. The lust of the eyes is his vision for staying alive. Pride of life is how he accomplishes it. What he has, what he does, who he knows, what he can put together. That's how we live. That is how we have been taught to live. The most successful people in life, success in quotes, are the ones who master those strategies. I mean, we sing songs about it. I will survive. (laughs) You thought you killed me, but here I am. They're back. And I have a plan. I have a plan. And in fact, we're so presumptuous, that we're so addicted to our plans, that we think they're the plans of God. So we ask God only for the help to execute our plan. Oh God, please help me with my plan. And if you're not going to help me with the whole plan, at least help me with the variables. God, I can't cover this base because this is the gap that I can't bridge. So would you please help me bridge the gap in my plan? I mean, that's how we pray. We ask, we bring that stuff with us when we come into the kingdom. I'm not telling you news, I'm just helping you recognize how we pray. Out of the abundance of the heart, we even speak these things to God. 
How far into this hole did you think we fell? Friend of mine in Texas says, we're so far in the hole, you have to pump sunshine back up in the hole for us. <laughs> we may not know it, but God knows exactly how far back up in that hole we are. And he intends to rescue us from every bit of it. He intends to remove every facet of darkness from us because in him is no darkness at all. So you will be tested beyond strength, beyond your ability to endure. Because if he leaves a little leaven in you, little darkness in you, what will happen over time? You'll become as dark again as you once were. Thank God that he has the fortitude to stay with it until it's done because we wouldn't. That's why we know he loves us as a father loves us. Now, so exactly how does he accomplish this resetting of our, of our minds so that we come all the way back to where we are clothed with him? How is that to be accomplished? God sent Jesus as the template Christ came into the world first to show us how to respond to God as he deals with us to bring every bit of darkness out of us. I'm not saying that Jesus had sin. I'm not. What I'm saying is he was born as a child. To become a man who is the pattern son. And God set it up that way so that we would see that living example of how we may come through all of the stages that we are to come through as well. For even hereunto are you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that we should follow. In his steps. And there's a reading from Peter that I want to, to see if I can pull up here very quickly. It speaks about how, because Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding, because he who has suffered in the flesh ceases from sin. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the, fle in the flesh for the lust of men, 
but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past, just what I was saying, our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in the lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, and so on. In regard to those, to these, they think it, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give you an, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according uh, to God in the spirit. Uh, they, they lived, they were dead while they were alive, you might, you might note. And then the famous passage that uh, has already been read to us, uh, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials that is to come upon you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. For if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And he says, don't suffer poorly, which is as an evildoer, busy body, and so on. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. The judgment, judgment occurs whenever you bring out the standard. The process of judgment ensues once the standard, the template, has been restored. The intent of suffering is to remove and refine you, remove from you and refine you to be able to receive the capacities of grace that God means to deposit in you. Think for a moment about what it means to refine metal. What is the suffering in, in the analogy to the refinement of metal? Suffering is likened to fire. And I might point out that in the refining of your metal, God is the fire. For your God is a consuming fire. So most of the time you think the devil is after you. It's really God. And the reason he's after you is not the reason you're thinking. He's going to run you down. And he'll eventually end up getting his foot on your neck. And when you ask him, what are you trying to do? He will say to you, I'm trying to kill you. I'm trying to bring you to the end of yourself. When you understand this, you understand that God is after you to work into, and to will in you his will and his pleasure when you understand that your question will never be why are you doing this to me 
when you hear yourself asking God, Oh God, why are you doing this to me? Say to your soul, Be quiet. I am further in the Lord than this. Rule your soul. Tell your soul, I am long past this, and you're not going to take me back to that. And in your spirit, rise up and say, Oh Father, what are you showing me? What do I need to see? Simple management steps or tools for your soul. Tell your soul it is not in control. When you quiet your soul, you can hear God. And if it's required for you to quiet your soul that you fast and pray, that's a good time to fast and pray. Because fasting will further add pressure on your soul to be quiet. And when you're talking to God, you're establishing, re-establishing the connection to the divine mind. So, tell your soul to be quiet. If you're going to have to die in that place, don't bleed all over the place. Let it be a quick sacrifice in that place. All right? Arm yourselves with the same mind. It's not strange. It is not strange that you should suffer fiery trials of many kind. kinds. It's not strange. Because God is separating out of you the dross of the world that you brought with you in your soul and by which now you're thinking of things of the Spirit. That fire is exactly like what happens when you refine gold. Trial of your faith more precious than gold. When you heat the metal the heat has the effect of separating what is pure from what has been attached to the pure and has lived with the pure for so long that the pure thinks it's part of it. The only way for you to know how you've been compromised in your soul is for God to apply the heat which causes the purity of your response to be absolutely distinguishable from the impurity of how you thought about it. Without heat, which is adversity, trial, suffering, without that, you will always accommodate the impure as if it's part of you. One of the most difficult things as a father that I face in helping sons see the conditions of their soul is if I bring correction, sometimes they think I'm rejecting them. 
because they don't see that what I'm trying to do is to adjust how they view the things that they view favorably that are in fact the very reasons they're stumbling. Children, when they try to correct each other, what is the common response? You're not the boss of me. What are they telling you? I like me the way I am. And you don't have the authority to change me. And if we're left in that condition, we'll grow up to be Donald Trump. <laughs> if that picture doesn't scare you, I am out of, I am out of ways of accomplishing it. We accommodate culturally to the kingdom of darkness. It's what we know. It's our default setting. We're born into it. We think like that. We have a DNA that is disposed to that. And the only way to separate that from how we view the truth and therefore how we view ourselves in relationship to the truth, the only way to do it is to apply the requisite heat that causes the separation. You know, it's interesting, in the refining of gold, heat does not cause the gold to be lost. Heat only causes that which is not the gold to surface. God, in trying, in putting you through these refining fires, does not intend that anything precious that he's placed in you be lost. But he has to rescue it from the corruption of your thinking, which has happened on so many levels and not by your consent. You're simply born into the estate where these things define your mindset going forward. You know, I, I was explaining some things about uh, how Americans think to, uh, to someone in Joburg a couple of days ago. And uh, I was explaining how because Americans are so used to being the power in the world, the economic power, the social, political power, the military power in the world, it's strange for them to think that they're not first in everything. I mean, and even when they're in other countries, if you say, you know, I have um, this kind of uh, an automobile, they'll tell you about the, the one that they have that's three times, in their minds, three times better than yours. And, and it's not even a point of boasting, it's just how they are. They, they, they view things very differently. For example, their value... You will never, for example, talk about the value of a person in terms of how much money he or she has. But Americans will say, oh, he's worth so much and so much. Or you will never talk about distance in terms of time. You say it's so many kilometers, uh, but Americans will say it's an hour and a half away. Because they value time. Different mindset. The thing you will never do that they talk about totally freely is how much debt you have. <laughs> they will say, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm five million in debt. 
it's it's almost it's almost the point of of glorying that you can you could accomplish that much of indebtedness <laughs> very different mindset and if you were to tell an american these things are not generally acceptable on the world stage they'll look at you like why they're acceptable in america that my point is we are so compromised by our understandings of the world our culture our default setting have been so compromised that we we can't see ourselves as we actually appear to heaven in the depth of that debauchery and corruption so the fiery trials are what releases us from these entanglements in the world and causes us to lose our uh, our sense of dependence on the world and moves us to a place of dependency on God that's why the trials have to go as deep as they have to go and that's why Jesus suffered as thoroughly as he did to that you might arm yourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in the flesh is no longer connected to the cosmos so he doesn't sin doesn't mean he doesn't do things wrong but his mind has been renewed so he's not given over automatically to sinful responses it's the the answer of a good conscience toward god because you've been resurrected from the dead see now in the remaining time Let me speak about how God specifically accomplishes. We have about 30 minutes. And uh, are you still okay? This is a lot to contain, and uh, I don't pretend that you can remember it all. That's the reason that I'm encouraging you to obtain the recordings. Cuz you know, it'll probably take you 6 months to unpack this much information. and a year or two to begin to practice some of it <clears throat> the scriptures say for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast in our pentecostal charismatic paradigm what that means is jesus came died on the cross and provided uh, redemption for us so that if we accept what he did on the cross we'll go to heaven when he, when we die because our entire concept of salvation is as it relates to going to heaven when we die not saved out of so that we might be returned to god translated us saved us out of the kingdom of darkness and did not take us to heaven the same day he put us into the kingdom of his son The first act of grace well, let me back up 
and, and, and state this. Let me come forward more, more specifically. When Jesus came, not only did he come to provide the template for our understanding of suffering, of our own suffering, but he came also to reconcile us to God in himself. Now, as such, he was empowered from heaven to accomplish fully putting us back into the original intent. What God originally intended when he created us. What did God intend when he created man? He looked on man, saw the corporate man, and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That means God saw us in the earth, finished as the image and likeness of himself, fully mature. So the intent of God is to bring us back to that. And in this season, to bring us back to both places of personal maturity and places of corporate maturity that we might be the expression of his image in the earth. We are placed in Christ in order to obtain all that is necessary for that. And when Jesus came, he was described as the Word of God who was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What does it mean to be full of grace? It means that everything that was necessary to find us where we are and to move us back in a matriculating fashion all the way back to the original intent is what he came full of the ability to do. Fullness of grace, grace in the scripture is the number five. And it's typified in the natural world by the five fingers on the hand because grace is an economy. Grace is the means by which the thing is to be done. Not just the, that the thing should be done, but the means by which it should be done. So often the scriptures refer to the strength of your right hand as the indication of an economy given to you. In the temple, there were five pillars on either side, supporting the thing that represented that which carried the presence of God in the earth, or in which the presence of God was, was uh, housed, to the extent that the presence of God could be housed in a thing. In the church... Five elements of grace come to us in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man measured by the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of men in their, their deceitful schemings. We'll be able to sort it out 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as every part does its work. That's the corporate man functioning in the image and likeness of the Son of God, the template of which was given to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came full of grace, five graces, five economies to accomplish every stage of that process. Now the five stages of sonship coordinate perfectly to the five economies of grace. When you're a child, you live in one economy of grace. When you're a toddler, you live in another economy of grace. They're cumulative, by the way. You're saved and you'll always be in that condition. Uh, you, and, and I'll go through the five economies of grace in a moment. Uh, when you're a teenager, you take up certain others of the economies of grace. And when you are a young man, you accede to another level of grace. And when you're finally a fully mature son, the five compendiums of grace should be in you so that you may become a dispenser of grace to others. All right? What then are the five economies of God's grace? And you need to see this because when you are suffering, you don't suffer all at once. Paul did not suffer above strength until he was fully a man, fully able to carry that level of responsibility. Otherwise, he'd have been discouraged from the beginning. So God measures out. He does not allow your enemy to give you any more. Uh, he doesn't use your enemy or permit your enemy to torment you any more than you can bear. But in every stage it feels like you've maxed out. But it's different. The trials I have today are not the trials I had as a young man, but it maxes me out just as much today as it did when I was a young I mean, I, I yawn at the trials I had as a young man today. But I'm as pressed today as a mature son. I'm as pressed today as ever I was pressed. You'll always be pressed. All you can hope for are some days to breathe. But you actually are meant to learn how to sleep in the boat. And that comes when you come to the end of your strength. So there are five economies of grace. Full of grace and truth. The first is the economy of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The second is the economy of reconciliation. Reconciliation. The third is the economy of conformation. Conformation. The fourth is the economy of maturation. Of maturation. 
And the fifth is the economy of exact representation. The economy of exact representation. In the first economy, and and here I only have time to summarize them, but these are the ways God builds his house in you. He's emptying you out by trials so he could fill you in with these economies of grace. First is the grace of salvation. That is not a particular reference to going to heaven when you die, but it's a reference to a different lordship. God saves us from being under the domain of Satan and puts us under the domain of Christ. That is salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God. We have made salvation a matter of going to heaven. Going to heaven is a result. It's a result of a process that has already started. Because and in as much as the process has started in you, when you die, you will go to heaven. But salvation is the recognition that you're under a different Lord. You're under a different Lord. That means you're under a different standard of rule. And it means that there will be conflicts in your mind between the standards of rule that you once were under and there are now conflicts with that to the standard of rule that you're under now. If you choose, if you choose at any time to adopt the standard of rule that you're under now and reject the standards of rule you were under before, there is an economy that absolutely enables that you can do that at any time. There is no power in hell or on the earth that could prevent you from choosing at any time to accept the standard of the king in whose kingdom you have come to be and reject the standard of the king under whose rule you used to be. So, one of the things that marks the transition from one economy to another is baptism. Why are you baptized? Baptism is a a symbol of death. Pardon me, it's a symbol of burial. Death having occurred. The reason that baptism is a necessary symbol, something you should do, you're not saved because of it, but it symbolizes you've been saved from the kingdom of darkness, and this is why. The authority of Satan to accuse you and hold you in his domain, tormenting you in his mind, that authority attaches to you as long as you are in his kingdom. And that's how he keeps you entrapped in that kingdom. But when you die, the symbol of which is you were buried, 
a new creation arises where the old creation was. So the ability of your enemy to accuse you of being what you were and in which state he could control you has ceased. And if, he, if over here in the kingdom of God he brings that accusation, your answer is very simple. You got the wrong person. The person you're accusing no longer exists. Not only was he dead, she was buried. So don't tell me I'm just like my mother. Or don't remind me of what I used to <laughs> Don't remind me of what I used to do. That person died. That's the economy of salvation. That's the grace of salvation. And if you answer the devil that way, he stops his accusation. He just does. He has nowhere to go with it. Because there's grace to save you from that. We have known these things, so we keep arguing with the devil. And part of our suffering is we argue with the devil. We don't need to. We say simply, shut up. Leave me alone. You have nothing to say about this. I have escaped you. Go and accuse the old person if you want to. But I am a new creation. And he will, this is what the word says. Submit to God, which is to acknowledge what is true. Resist the devil. What will he do? Flee from you. A lot of times, we go back to God and we say, Oh God, I just can't get over this hump. This is, this is just killing me. I thought I was saved, but you know, now I'm back where it seems I started. And the moment you do something in this realm that reminds you of what you used to do in the other realm, the accuser is on your back. But it still works if you say to him, you have the wrong person. Because indeed, you died. That's how you morphed. That's how you got translated. You left that body of sin and became identified with this reality of Christ. You're now clothed in Christ. And if you elect to, to assert that authority, there is grace to save you from the accuser. It's not salvation but going to heaven. You're already in the kingdom of heaven. When you die, you'll change your location. But it's the salvation from the accuser. From the tormentor. When you assert it, Christ sufficiently came, paid the price, and now you are free from that. He was full of grace. Every grace necessary, every strand of grace necessary to rescue you from the accuser has been fully established and all you need to do is, is uh, uh, choreograph the responses of your mind to take advantage of the grace in which you stand. So you're warring differently. 
the enemy doesn't come now and tell me um, what I used to do and how I am like that. It's a waste of time. That's the grace you need to get used to as a child in the Lord. I mean, that's, you come out in that venue. Then the grace of reconciliation. That is when you begin to see yourself no longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You've been reconciled to who God foreknew you to be. You've been reconciled to the concept that you are not a vagabond and a fugitive who needs to hide from God, that you may come boldly to avail yourself of the grace of reconciliation. You're being reconciled to God in Christ. So you acknowledge that I am no longer my own. I am a member of the person of Christ. And nobody can pluck you out of his hand. No one can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus because you have been reconciled to God in Christ. He came with the grace to reconcile you. It's not of works lest you should boast and say, I reconcile myself. I've overthrown it. No, it's that you understand and accept the overflow of this grace of which he was full to reconnect you to that for which God foreknew you. And then there's grace of conformation. Conformation. It is to conform you to the standard who is Christ. And as much as you suffer... The spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. The grace to endure is in you, even when the suffering is above strength. So you learn to welcome your weakness, not so that you can be weak, but you could be rid of the pretense that you have the strength to resist and to overcome. And clothe yourself with the grace of Christ, with the grace of his presence, so that his strength is actually what engages your enemy, but does so through you. Christ, you see, is your life. What does that mean? He lives in you by his spirit. It means that everything that he is, is resident within you in the measure necessary to overcome. What keeps him from being functional in you, is you taking it up on your own. You taking up the struggle on your own. The, oh God, please help me syndrome. 
But if while you're in prison, you're praying. If while you're in prison, you're singing and praying. There will come a sound from heaven that will rock the prison to its foundation and you will be loosed. I read that somewhere. (laughs) It doesn't matter what the prison is. You don't have to find a way to break out. If you are there, you are there by the hand of God. It may be unjustly. The, the, the procedure that got you there may be unjust. Because you're doing the will of God. You're not being compromised. And you ended up there. When you find yourself there, it could be that you are in a prison while you're in a prison while you're in a prison. Because they were in stocks, which is that the, the heads and, and hands were locked in a kind of a metal contraption, I mean a wooden contraption that immobilized them. It was a total immobilization. They were in a, in a physical prison, so they were in one prison. They were in that second prison and they were in the inner prison. Maximum security in a contraption in a prison. Doesn't matter. If you know that you are there by the will of God, worship God. And praise God. It's not your songs that will break down the prison. It's your attitude toward God that triggers the grace of confirmation to the standard of Christ in the hostility of your circumstances. And God will shake everything that can be shaken on your behalf. I promise you, I've seen this. I know this to be true. You know, this is not the slay of hand, teach you five, twelve points in a poem and (laughs) and so on. No, this is telling you that he was full of grace. And when you are rendered weak by unjust circumstances or by demonic uh, uh, resistance or impossibilities for which you see no end, don't say, oh God, why me? Praise God in your circumstance. Now you don't get there all in one day. So you spend many days in these prisons. And after you figure out you can't get out, and that God ensures that you're not going to get out unless he gets you out, then is when it slowly enters your mind, Maybe I could pray in here. (laughs) And you begin to hum a a tune in there. And soon enough, uh, it becomes a song. And what it tells God is, the work in you is done. Your response is what tells God when it's time for him to move on. And you can be let out safely. You can be safely let out. How you respond in your circumstance is what tells God when the work is done. He won't take you out of it. I mean, he'll let you, you know, if you insist on just um, um, not being conformed, 
you know, he'll make the jailer more friendly to you and so on, but you're not getting out because you can't be let out in that condition. You're not fit for much in that condition. He won't let you out to handle his kingdom. And you watch. Everyone who has let himself out has to go back. Because they collapse for the lack of strength. Everyone who resists the hand of God disqualifies himself or herself from being promoted in God. And you fall short of the grace of God. The next level of grace. So he conforms you to what he foreknew you to be. In that confirmation, he brings back to your understanding or he acquaints you for the first time with why he put you here. It's in the quietness of having run your course that God speaks to you about who he made you to be. There is no son of God with a promise on his or her life who has not had to spend time in prison. One, in one form or another. Joseph was in a physical prison with a vision of ruling a nation. Because it's in there that you learn when you have power to dispatch your enemies that the greater power is to spare their lives. Because you're learning not how to execute vengeance, but you're learning how to be the exact representation of your father. And these are the things that have to be quieted in you. These are the places where you're rendered immobile so you cannot and will not take up again the systems of the world that you once knew so well and could use so effectively to your advantage. Fourthly, and again, these are just commentaries. I have a book coming out called On Earth as It Is in Heaven, and I go into great detail on the five economies of grace as one section of it. And you'll know about it. We'll, we'll make sure that it, uh, the, the publication information reaches you. The, uh, the, fifth, the fourth economy is the economy of maturation. Maturation. All these prior steps, of course, contribute to maturation. When God is dealing with you at the level of maturation, he will not treat you any longer as a child. He will not. As I've come to this place, the characteristic of God's dealings with me are very confrontational. When I go in to talk to the Lord, he does not say to me, Yea, yea, my son, how I love you. <laughs> That's the prophetic thing for, you know, you remember that. No. He immediately points to the, the issues of his displeasure with me. Immediately. And I stand under it like a man. And if I need to, I repent. But it doesn't push me back. I'm not fragile in my emotions. I don't run and say, God doesn't love me anymore. When I was a child, 
I thought as a child, I understood as a child, and I responded or acted as a child. But now that I'm a man, God intends for me to gird myself up like a man and answer him according to the challenges of that time. So God will work in you in a period of your life in very confrontational ways. And you won't like it. In fact, if there's anything left in you of man-pleasing or a fragile ego, he won't just bruise your ego. He'll collapse it all together. When you're in that state, God will mostly uh, uh, attack the things in you that you still want to hold on to, that he's already shown you in numerous references, must go. And he'll begin to import into you new understandings, new requirements, new disciplines. And he expects you to step up and say, here am I. I'm standing under the weight of your requirements of me because you have invested so much in me. When you come upon, to look upon this tree, you must find it fruitful in its season. Otherwise, your obligation will be to cut it down. It's just occupying pew space. It encumbers the ground. It encumbers the ground. It's of no particular use to me. God will deal with you in the stage of maturation as a man. And if you will come up under it, you'll bear up under it, then God will see that he can put even more weight on you. Now does it make sense why you can come from glory to glory? Yeah. There's an eternal weight of glory that God wishes to put on you. But God is not unjust. He will not put weight on a child. But he will put weight on a mature man. And eventually it is his pleasure to put you on display in the earth in the fifth stage of grace. And I, I say every one of these comes to you in its season because it is an economy of grace. It is in Christ. You've been assembled to Christ. These graces are in Christ. From the time you were born again to exact representation, every provision of grace for these things is in Christ. Every provision of grace is in Christ. But it's grace through faith. You must know that it's there. And as he brings it to you, having been properly instructed, you'll stand up in it. And you will see that it cannot fail. So when you're tempted to put your hand again to the former things you used to do, and you withdraw your hand knowing you're going to die in that place, 
knowing that you've relieved yourself of every ability you have to save yourself. If God doesn't come through, then you are dead. But the fact that you will withdraw and not save yourself is the very indication that you are dead. You're dead to the world. And therefore you're dead to the pollution of your soul by the world because you will not go back and rely on it because the love of the Father is in you. You love the Father and you know that the Father loves you because he has loved Christ and he sees you in Christ. And when you lay it down, when you say, I will not, I used to be able to manipulate this situation and get the result I want. But now I am up against it and I will not go there. I will not. So help me God, I will not. And you stand there. You're dead. It is God's pleasure to raise you from the dead by the economy that exists to do just that. That's how you tap into the exact representation. And when God presents a man or a woman like that, he presents them with pleasure. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if anyone opposes you, he considers it a direct assault upon his person. God have mercy on whoever will lay a hand on the Ark of the Covenant. For he will die that day in his place. So I didn't leave your souls in hell in talking to you about about this message. In fact, the great message here now is the perfecting of the Son. The entire series of presentations is called the perfecting of the son or perfect through suffering. So when you review these messages, my hope is that you will see from the beginning as you go through it that the intent of God is to bring you through to the place where he shows the son from his viewpoint. He shows and reveals the son in the earth. So strengthen yourselves, for no trial at the time is pleasant but painful. But when it is done, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. So strengthen yourselves in the Lord. We've all had natural fathers who disciplined us, and and we respected or loved them for it. God disciplines us for our good so that we might Share in his glory. For when Christ who is our life appears, we appear with him in glory. Beloved, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and to establish you among the sanctified. May grace, mercy, and peace be with you always. Amen.